Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. In a battle between a hot new electric vehicle company and hot new inflation numbers, I'm afraid the inflation numbers win. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We started the week pretty sure of where we were going. Earnings were up, at least basically. Equities were reaching up to new highs. Bonds were tame. And we had a new infrastructure package. All was right with the world. But then Wednesday hit, and consumer inflation numbers came in high, higher than anyone really expected. An annualized increase of 6.2%. That's the highest in nearly 30 years. Austin Goolsby of the Chicago Booth School said it's not going away anytime soon. Look, it's a big number, and uh, whether you're team permanent or team temporary, everybody agrees it's it's going to be months of this uh, bef- before you see any relief. And San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, while saying it was too soon to change course, admitted that the inflation numbers really did get her attention. Inflation is high, higher. It's eye-popping. This is a transitory period. That's what we believe. That's what I think when I look out at the data. But it's directly related to COVID. And as quicker we get through COVID, the better off we're going to be as an economy. But the week wasn't over yet, as electric vehicle maker Rivian went to market and blew past the price set for the IPO. The results of what the Rivian CEO said was a true team effort. We spent years and years putting this together. And really what's so exciting is seeing such a diverse group of people with diverse backgrounds and, and interests really coming together uh, to create these products and, and you know, standing there looking out at the teams as we rang the bell. Uh, it was quite emotional, you know, seeing, seeing so many passionate faces. It was, it was really powerful. And three corporate giants, GE, Johnson & Johnson, and Toshiba, all decided to break themselves up, with GE CEO Larry Culp saying it was all about focus. These businesses will be more focused. There'll be a higher, greater level of accountability. 
We should have sharper capital allocation, more strategic flexibility. And frankly, I think it's going to be good for the team as well. I think we'll end up with investor bases focused on these pure plays, investors that are probably underinvested in GE today. You put all that together, it's clear this is the best path for us to unlock and create value going forward. And when the dust settled from what is fairly called a wild week, it left equities down for the first time since early October, though not as much because of a Friday rally, with the S&P 500 off about three-tenths of a percent and the Nasdaq down seven-tenths. But really much of the action was over the bond side, with the 10-year yield up to well over 1.5 percent and inflation concerns driving the 10-year tips up to over 2.7 percent. To take us through the week and what it taught us, we welcome now Greg Peters, co-CIO of PGM Fixed Income, and Sarah Kelly. CEO of Causeway Capital Management. So let's start on the equity side. Uh, welcome, Sarah. Give us a sense of the equities, because we started the, the week really at record levels, and then the inflation numbers hit, but then they came back up at the end of the week. Mm, yes, they did. The in inflation genie seems to be out of the bottle, and markets have to digest that. The technology stocks, many of them seem to have such significant market shares or competitive positioning. The market is giving them credit for being able to price this inflation, pass it on to consumers. But there are many in, in both industries and sectors, according to our team, where that won't necessarily be the case. And that's really the job of the fundamental research analyst is to determine whether or not a business, say it's consumer staples and uh, food beverage, can they pass on their co increased cost of raw materials on into their final product? Because if they can't, that means margin squeeze and that means earnings will, all other things being equal, will decline, which is not good for markets. So, Greg, when we see inflation numbers like this, we automatically think about what it does to bonds and perhaps most important, what it says to the Fed and how they might react. What did you make of this week? Yeah, I think that's the story, what it makes, uh, what it tells you about the Fed and central bank action ultimately. And so there's been this this uh, response in the bond market really before the CPI print that uh, inflation is peaking picking up, and more importantly, that the Fed is going to be much more aggressive, and central banks globally much more aggressive than initially anticipated. So I think that is the story in the marketplace, the two-year yield. Uh, and then equally, I, I mean, this is a volatile market in fixed income that has been largely isolated in fixed income. So what you're seeing is this disconnect in volatility in fixed income and equities. And yes, it does make some sense for sure as the as the earnings coming out are quite strong, margins all time high, the uh, the micro story is is quite supportive. But at some point the volatility that we're seeing in fixed income markets have to start to infiltrate other markets and risk markets um, if it doesn't settle down. But Craig, at the same time, how much is the Fed sort of putting a blanket on that volatility, even given what we've seen? Because certainly they've made it pretty clear they're not in a rush to change course. You just heard Mary Daly say, well, we're not going to change course right away. Yeah, but they've changed their rhetoric uh, quite substantially since the summer. And if you look at the bond market yield in the two-year uh, and even inflation, uh, it, it's been commensurate with the change in Fed tone. So I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm really worrying about the Fed here moving too fast too soon, particularly when you think about the construct of inflation, that it's largely outside of the Fed control. So the Fed raising rates 
isn't going to help offset the supply chain issues, right? So, it's not going to have those kind of effects like it normally does. Okay, thank you so very much for being with us. That's Greg Peters. He is co-CIO of PGM. Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital is going to be sticking with us as we turn our attention to all those big corporate breakups this week. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was a week of breaking up, at least when it came to some very big corporations like Toshiba and Johnson & Johnson and General Electric. And GE Chairman and CEO Larry Culp said in the end it was a clear choice of focus over synergy. The GE teams heard from me for the last three years that I will bet on the benefits of focus every day, far more than the often illusory benefits that come from synergies. Now, we certainly enjoy those synergies today in certain places, but more and more we've been running the company on a decentralized basis, not as one GE, not as even the four reporting segments, but the 30 P&Ls that deal with customers that compete in the markets every single day. So if there are synergies that we enjoy today, we'll work to continue those, of course, but the vast majority of the benefits here will come from focus. Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital Management is still with us. So, Sarah, I, I want to talk to you as an investor because you own GE. We talked to Larry Culp and he said part of the benefit is for investors so they can focus as well on which line they'd like to be invested in. As you look at this breaking up of GE, how do you analyze it? Uh, well, I just want to set the stage that we may be one of the few who are analyzing it. GE is absolutely hated by investors because of the damage they've done. If you think about it, David, to, to today, to go back, so the last five years, the annualized performance of the S&P 500 has been 20%. So that's 20% per annum on average. The comparable number for GE is negative 13%. <laughs> GE is a disaster. So Larry Culp's arrival in October of 2018, he had his work cut out for him, and he's very incentivized financially to get it done. But there, there, the two great businesses there were aviation and healthcare, and then power, renewables, and digital weren't quite as good. Uh, the key was to set them free. There were some codependency because not only did power and renewables have some serious problems, but then we had COVID. So then what happens to the aviation business? You know, this is 
um, aircraft engines, avionics systems, it, it grinds to a halt. So free cash flow collapses and therefore the healthcare business had to support the other two. So what makes this announcement so interesting is that it may be signaling that GE is getting beyond its problems. It'll actually coming back into blue skies where the long-term care business that the company has that is supposed to pay people for nursing care and um, end-of-life assistance, that was a, uh, GE stopped writing those policies in 2006, but it's been a huge financial burden for the company. Under-reserving has been a chronic problem. So this breakup as it may, as Larry Colt noted, allow these three areas to shine on their own, it, it may be signaling, according to our industrial analysts, that GE is not worried any longer about long-term care. because, And that means we shouldn't, as investors, be worried, and that is a very good thing. Yeah, it sure is, given the history there. But let's take those three lines of business, because they're not breaking it all up at once. I thought that that was important. I mean, the first they spin off healthcare, which you said, that's the strongest one anyway. That's ready to go on its own. They're going to take another year on power to sort of get that up and running may need a little more help. And then you have aviation at the end. Talk about those three lines of business in their futures. Well, the healthcare business is in very good shape and GE intends to retain 19.9% of that business. And ultimately that may be sold. That will end up if, if it, this process continues to its fruition in, in the aviation business at stake. But the that that's 2023. So here we are, we're in 2021. That's a bit of a waiting time. And that means the stock may be volatile or it could be down. Who knows? Um, investors hate waiting, but it takes some time to do these tax-free spinoffs. And also GE is determined, and this was part of the announcement, to set these three areas off on their own at um, much lower levels of financial leverage. And that's really where the cash flow is so important. How much can the company generate? To be to get um, investment-grade credit ratings for all three is going to be a real, that's the serious effort ahead. So that's why they need time. There's 2023 and then 2024 for power and renewables. So we um we await all that information, but but there's really positive signaling happening here. Otherwise, why would announce why would they announce it now? They would just continue to work on it and not let us know. Yeah, Larry kept emphasizing three publicly traded investment grade companies. He's very proud of that, that they'll be all be investment grade from his point of view at least. Talk about power, which has also struggled, had a lot of problems, some residual problems with some maintenance contracts and things. Uh, what about keeping traditional power together with renewables? Siemens went a different way. They let renewables renewables go off on its own, maybe a bigger growth thing. Do you think that makes sense? As an investor, do you look at that and say, yeah, that's sensible? It is, given the mix that GE has. Renewables ultimately, as we all assume, will be the business that sustains in the future. But it was never really our preferred of their businesses, and we're glad to see it set aside and spun off. The Again, the aviation and the healthcare business is far superior in terms of free cash flow generation. Uh, aviation almost and generate almost none in the downturn and now is coming back. We think there's a normalized $4 billion of free cash just from that business. And if you wrap the whole, all of it up together and you think about it today, there might be normalized seven to $8 billion of free cash flow coming from the, the sum of the three parts. That's something that, no, I don't think GE has delivered 
for a very, very long time. And Sarah, I'll come back to you as an investor, because as I say, Larry kept emphasizing that allows an investor to decide which, if any, of these lines they want to play in. Is it more valuable to be able to pick and choose among health and power and aviation than to have it all lumped together and have to buy the whole package? Very definitely. We as investors prefer that. And then we think about them. You want the senior managements of each, and they're not uh, Larry's according to our industrial allowance, is the best industrial CEO in the country. So there's a lot right there. Him running aviation without any distractions, fantastic. And then there are two very skilled individuals who will be the CEOs of the power and of the healthcare business. But think about it. They and their and their team can be compensated on their own efforts without the um, distractions and or dilution of any other parts of the business. They can really focus. They'll have each have their own individual boards of directors who can focus on that business. So yes, this is, given there weren't synergies, this makes perfect sense. And we expect the stock price to ultimately reflect this and be a very significant return for our clients. Very quickly at the end, Sarah, is this the end of conglomerates? Mm, you know, I, I, hard to say. I, mean, I think they'll continue. There are plenty of them in Japan, for example, uh, and unless they're desperate like Toshiba, they don't, they don't break up. But, but we're not patient as investors, and this is true globally. And when we see a company who's, who, yeah. for example, if it's multiple right. being suppressed, we want them to fix it. Yeah, and by the way, Toshiba had a little nudge, as I recall, from some activists. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. It's always great having you with us. That's Sarah Ketterer. She's CEO of Causeway Capital Management. Coming up, it was nice while it lasted, but is the longest bull market in history about to come to an ugly end? We talk with famed investor Jeremy Grantham of GMO. When the decline comes, it will be uh, perhaps bigger and better than anything previously in U.S. history. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Asset bubbles, they're the one thing every investor wants to avoid. From the tulip frenzy of 17th century Netherlands to Wall Street in 1929 to the tech bubble of 2000. The problem is knowing when you're in a bubble and when it will end. Fed Chair Jay Powell has recognized since last spring that asset values are stretched. If you look at asset valuations, um, you can say that by some measures, some asset valuations are elevated compared to history. I think that's clear. While others, like Kathy Wood of ARC, say we're just getting started, that in fact the market has been broadening and getting healthier. There has been a rotation into value as a style as fears of inflation and interest rates increasing picked up. And therefore there's been a broadening out of this, the, this bull market. I think we are in a very strong bull market. And then you have Tesla, which some people say is a bubble in and of itself, skyrocketing to a market cap of over a trillion dollars, or roughly 20 times what it was just four years ago. While others see Tesla not as a bubble, but as the exception that proves the rule, changing the entire face of the automobile industry. That's the view of star quarterback Tom Brady, as he talked about Hertz's decision to include Teslas in its fleet. I've had a Tesla for about four years, and um, again, I think it's a uh, it's kind of the direction the world is heading and i think for me it was about being really conscious about the impact that we all have on on our planet 
Whether it is Tesla or tech or markets overall, no one has been more outspoken about the possibility of bubbles than Jeremy Grantham. He is co-founder of GMO and really a student through the history of markets that are overheated. And we welcome him now to Wall Street Week. Mr. Grantham, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, let's talk about bubbles, but let's come in if we can through Tesla, because you've talked some about Tesla in the past. I mean, last time I checked, I think the market cap is something like 40 times what it was four years ago. Uh, is Tesla a bubble? Yes, that's pretty easy. I, and having said that, I'm the proud owner of a Model 3, and I, I do think they're magnificent vehicles, and I think Tesla has done extraordinarily well. But if you go back into the life cycle of the fangs, uh, Tesla is many multiples of the price-to-sales ratio that they were at this stage in their lives. And they have been brilliantly successful. So Tesla is A, assuming it will be brilliantly successful, and B, assuming it will be, in addition to that, multiples as successful as the other fangs. And they are some of the great companies in the history of capitalism. Yeah, I'm always reluctant to say it might be different this time, but let me ask that question. Could it be different this time when it comes to Tesla? Because it is at the crosshairs of a fundamental technological transformation to electric vehicles and a real fight for the climate globally, a part, an important part of that. So is it possible that is different? There's a major transformation going on here that's bigger than what we've seen before. I think if you were defending the fangs, you would say in each case that they represented, like Amazon, a, a, a crucial fork in the road on retailing. If you were looking at Facebook and, and uh, Netflix, all, all of them represent these breakout major changes, disruptive changes. And uh, I'm very grateful for Tesla as a dedicated green that they have pioneered uh, EVs. But now in phase two, every, every great automobile company, all the Mercedes and, and the BMWs and so on, and, and the VWs are all gearing up uh, to go electric. And, we, and that, that owes a lot to Tesla. But now in phase two, they're gonna have to have some serious competition and, and to live up to the expectations of the prize uh, will be Impossible. So speaking more broadly, you've said that we're in something, I think you called it an epic bubble right now. Uh, I think you've been very careful to say, I'm not going to predict when it ends. I'm just going to say that it does end. What's going to bring it to an end? The thing about the great bubbles, 1929, Japan, no, no one knows after all these years exactly why the bubble peaked. You can say with hindsight it peaked at the point, of course, of maximum euphoria. So there was no hint of of darkness at the end of the tunnel. Uh, everything looked absolutely splendid as the market peaked. And of course, as long as it looks absolutely splendid, everybody is happy. The, the thing about the great bubbles is how intensely do people buy into the idea that it can never break, that prices will never decline. The housing bubble of 2005, 2006 in America was a brilliant bubble in that description. You had people going out and buying a second house to rent because house prices never declined. Indeed, Ben Bernanke said U.S. house prices have never declined. Of course, then they promptly did. But that is par for the course for the Federal Reserve. Thank you so much. That's Jeremy Grantham. He is co-founder of GMO. Coming up, we wrap up the week, as always, with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard.
This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, and we're joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, you had quite a week, if I can put it that way, because you've been warning on this program and otherwise uh, again and again, week after week, about inflation. And, boy, this week we got it. 6.2% on the headline number on CPI. Shocking an awful lot of people. I guess I start out with why did you get it right? And so many economists, including the Federal Reserve and, for that matter, the White House, why did they get it wrong? David, you know, I did it seemed to me, apply a fairly basic economic model to the magnitude of the demand stimulus. And it seemed to me it predicted that we'd get uh, certainly a significant rise uh, in inflation. And then there were some other things that came along on the supply side that I didn't foresee, that others didn't foresee, that made it even worse uh, than I had expected. I think there are a couple lessons uh, from this uh, episode. One is that it's always important to avoid excessive certainty. The policymakers and economics who go, wor- go wrong the most are the ones who are most confident of a single model. You've always got to recognize that there are a wide range of uh, possibilities. You know, on your show, I always said that I thought this was the risk and the most likely thing, but there was a one in three chance that this would all work out terrifically and uh, that I'd be entirely wrong. I think more recognition of all the range of possibilities is a good discipline for policymakers. I also think, and, and economists, I also think that we have a problem and it's a pretty broad problem with uh, what I call motivated belief. People really wanted to engage for all sorts of reasons, humanitarian, uh, political, related to momentum at the beginning of an administration in a very, very large stimulus program. And so they convinced themselves that it wouldn't be uh, inflationary because they really wanted it to uh, not be inflationary. And I think that something we need to do is be much more attentive to the fact that the world is as it is, not always as we prefer it to be. Uh, We can 
want very much to be out of Afghanistan and believe deeply that it's best to be out of Afghanistan without that making us confident that it can take place in a efficient and uh, complete uh, way. We can want very badly for it to be true that improving the uh, climate change problem can be accomplished without raising uh, carbon prices in ways that middle-class people uh, don't want, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily true uh, that that is the case. Yeah, we have a problem with inflation. I think everyone at this point agrees with you we have a problem. But the question is how big a problem and for how long? Because we had Paul Krugman, you've identified him earlier as a friend of yours and a former classmate, I believe, Hillary. And he came out this week in the New York Times and said, you know, this is not like the 1970s. It's like 1946 to 1948 when people came back from the war. There was a big uptick in demand. Supply had to catch up. And the worst thing we could do would be to tighten because back then they did tighten and it led to a recession. What do you say to that analysis? Uh, Paul's examples have been have sort of been bouncing around a bit. I, I think the most obvious example continues to be uh, the Vietnam War. The other obvious example is the 1970s, where people were saying temporary due to specific factors all the time. I guess I don't really uh, hear uh, the music on uh, Paul's uh, thing. Uh, we had price controls, major price controls, and we took them off. You'd expect when you took off a major price control, a big transitory uh, increase as prices returned to their level. No price controls uh, this time. We had a extraordinary demobilization of vast amounts of production of tanks and other things that were uh, Take it, that were taken off. Uh, that didn't happen uh, either. You know, so far, the, um, the lesson has been uh, that used to be uh, that Neil Ferguson and others drew that uh, fears that the economy would go into depression were wrong because those kinds of fears existed during the Second World War. I just think it was a different, uh, different time, and uh, the Phillips curve had not yet been invented. It says something about the psychology of uh, that moment, that if you looked in the first edition of the Samuelson textbook, it didn't have a graph of the inflation rate. It had a graph of the price level because people thought of prices as going up and down rather than rates of inflation going uh, up and uh, down. Larry, from monetary policy to restructuring corporations, we've had a spate this week of large corporations breaking themselves up. First, General Electric going into three parts. Then at the end of the week, we have Johnson & Johnson breaking into two parts. And over uh, in Asia, we have Toshiba breaking into a couple of major component parts as well. Is there something more fundamental underlying this? What is driving this increasing emphasis on focus rather than synergy? David, I, I think this is a broadly positive thing. I think in most cases, these splits probably have come later than uh, would have been ideal. And I think those who don't like markets and don't like activists should be given a little pause 
by this kind of uh, development? I think it's two things. Uh, the first is that in an increasingly complicated world, it's the essence of strategy to compensate, uh, to build on strength rather than to compensate for weakness. And all of us are better off specializing a bit on what our distinctive talent is or what it is that is our strength. I think that's true for companies as well. Second, investors through their investments express beliefs. Some people believe in prescription drugs and biotech. Others believe that consumer products are going to be uh, the best way forward. Some people believe that the aviation business is good. Other people believe the healthcare business is gonna be good. Not many people believe in particular sandwiches that were put together decades ago. And so by splitting companies up, people give investors an opportunity to express the kinds of beliefs that investors are likely to have rather than to bet on somewhat oddly and historically constructed sandwiches. That's what I think this is about, and I think for the most part, it's a good thing. Thank you so very much. That's our special Wall Street Week contributor. It's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. The last of the conglomerates. There was a time not so terribly long ago when conglomerates were all the rage. Think Harold Janine of ITT, Gulf and Western, Linton Industries, many of which grew up and then died away. But then there was GE, the biggest of them all. It lasted the longest. When we had Jack Welch take what was a light bulb company founded by Thomas Alva Edison in the 19th century and expand it, expanded it to television and motion pictures and most of all into finance. He took a company that had revenues of about $26 billion a year to $130 billion a year. The market cap went up over $450 billion. That was the largest in the world at the time. But trees don't grow to the sky, and neither did GE. Jack Welch moved on. We had Jeff Immelt take his place. And during his tenure, we took what had been the gold standard for corporate America and turned it into something of a turnaround. And in the end, even Jeff Immelt couldn't quite explain why that had happened. We had, uh, through multiple recessions, we had uh, really generated record earnings and cash flow. We had good businesses, good people good initiatives, but at the end of the day, the stock price lagged. So three and a half years ago, the GE board turned to Larry Culp, the former CEO of Danaher, to sort things out. Larry came in and pretty much threw out the playbook of Jack Welch. He pruned, he focused on cash flow and debt reduction, and he just plain focused overall. It all came to a head this week when Larry Culp announced that he would break up the company into three parts, healthcare, power, and aviation. These businesses will be more focused, There'll be a higher, greater level of accountability. We should have sharper capital allocation, more strategic flexibility. And frankly, I think it's going to be good for the team as well. So is this the end of conglomerates? Nicholas Heyman of William Blair echoed Larry Culp, who said it really is more important to focus today rather than go for those synergies across different businesses. It's much more important to have uh, really 110% uh, focus on one end market instead of customers because things are changing so structurally and so rapidly that um, you really can't be burdened by having to wait for another part of the company to come around. While Jerry Davis of Michigan Ross School thinks that there may still be room for conglomerates when it comes to tech. Anybody think of Amazon? I think that there is a future for conglomerates, but it's in the IT sector. If you look at big tech companies like Alphabet, uh, 
like Facebook, they really are conglomerates. In some sense, they are hearkening back to the conglomerate that GE was at its birth. But if you listen to Larry Culp himself, it's not about the form. It's not about whether it's a conglomerate or not a conglomerate. In the end, it's about getting the job done. It's ultimately about performance, right? I've, I've been in companies where we did a number of things under one roof. So I, I've seen it from a number of different angles. But ultimately, it's all about looking forward and being in a position to perform. And I think for GE today, on three separate bottoms, we'll be at our best. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.